Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, February 28th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top stories. Peter Obi wins Lagos, but Bola Tanubu leads overall in Nigeria's elections. Nearly 60 migrants are killed after their boat sinks near Italy. Thousands of protesters across Europe call for peace in Ukraine. A Belarusian group claims responsibility for an attack on a Russian surveillance aircraft. A U.S. government report says COVID was likely leaked from a lab. Two Israelis are killed in a West Bank attack, sparking a rampage of violence. The GOP says candidates will be made to pledge loyalty to the 2024 presidential nominee. The House GOP probes the government response to the Ohio train derailment. Ron DeSantis signs a bill to take over Florida's Disney District. And Dilbert comics are dropped following the creator's controversial comments on race. Our first story today is about Nigeria's election, where Obi wins Lagos State and Tanubu leads overall. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, The Guardian, Steers Elections, Time, and BBC News. Nigeria's Labour Party presidential candidate Peter Obi has won a narrow victory in the commercial hub of Lagos State, defeating the ruling All-Progressive Congress, or APC, party's Bola Tanubu by less than 10,000 votes, according to Electoral Commission data released on Monday. This comes as a surprising result as the APC contender was expected to easily win the state, which is his political stronghold. Tanubu is a former governor of Lagos and is an influential politician in the region. The governing party, however, managed to win control of more local authorities in Lagos. The APC is leading both the presidential and parliamentary races, which remain wide open as only a fraction of the votes cast by up to 87 million potentially eligible voters has been collated since Saturday. As of Monday afternoon, Tanubu has a roughly 12-point nationwide lead over the People's Democratic Party, or PDP, candidate Atiku Abubakar, with Obi trailing by more than 26 percentage points. Some 9 million votes have been counted so far. If no candidate obtains at least 25% of the votes in two-thirds of the country's states, the top two candidates will face a runoff election within the three following weeks. It's estimated that it will take five days to count and report the results. The main opposition PDP and the Labor Party have walked out of the election center in Abuja, alleging that there is a lack of transparency with the new electronic voting system, which is being used for the first time in Nigeria's national elections. All right. On this program, we like to separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts and our narrative spins begin with narrative A from The Economist. Despite living under democratic rule since 1999, this is the first time that Nigerians could cast their votes for a candidate that offers hope for change as the country faces economic and security challenges. Obi can unite the country as he is campaigning on competence instead of on divisive ethnic or religious lines. He knows the problems of Nigeria more than anyone else. And Jacobin brings us narrative B. While this election may promote youth engagement in politics and lead to a break in the hegemony of Nigeria's two establishment parties, very little will change, even if Obi enters into office as parliament is likely to remain under the control of those political forces. 
In addition, his market-oriented reforms can only deepen the country's social, economic, and security crises. And the prediction community at Metaculus occasionally provides us with nerd narratives. This one says there's an 11% chance that Nigeria will have a coup before the year 2025. Nearly 60 are dead after a migrant boat sinks near Italy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, Al Jazeera, BBC News, Yahoo News, DW, and France 24. After a wooden boat crowded with migrants ran aground on Sunday, rescuers have recovered nearly 60 bodies with dozens more missing. Death toll estimates are reaching 100 people, with some survivors indicating that there were as many as 200 passengers when it set out from Turkey. The boat, which had departed from Turkey several days earlier with refugees from Afghanistan, Iran, and several other countries, ran aground near Staccato di Cutro, a seaside resort on the eastern coast of Calabria. According to the Italian Coast Guard, approximately 80 people survived the shipwreck. Interior Minister Matteo Piantadasi, who visited the scene, said as many as 30 people may be missing. According to the Interior Ministry, nearly 14,000 migrants have arrived in Italy by sea so far this year, an increase from 5,200 over the same period last year. Italy and Spain have often complained that they take in the largest number of those trying to cross the Mediterranean into Europe. Italy's right-leaning government recently passed a controversial law restricting aid vessels from rescuing more than one boatload of migrants at a time. Regional Governor Roberto Ochiudu said, Calabria is in mourning after this terrible tragedy. Italian President Sergio Mattarella urged the international community to commit to eradicating the causes of mass migration, including conflict, persecution, terrorism, and poverty. Those were the facts, and we'll start this round of spins with a narrative A from Your Active. While the EU has a moral obligation to help refugees, the bloc is facing an unprecedented migration crisis as a result of current policies and abuses of an overwhelmed system, leading to tragedies such as these. The bloc must work together to strengthen controls at external borders with a focus on return procedures, reducing incentives for secondary movement, and promoting effective solidarity. And narrative B from Jacobin. The European Commission calls the loss of innocent migrant lives on the Mediterranean a tragedy. Yet at the same time, EU member states have pledged substantial new funds for weapons, surveillance, and speeding up deportations as well as calling for building walls and fences around the EU to keep refugees out. By closing land routes, the EU is forcing migrants to make extremely dangerous voyages across the Mediterranean. I mean, I, I, I agree with the spirit of what the Italian president was saying, like, well, we got to fix the causes of mass, you know, persecution, terrorism, poverty. Yeah. First of all, good luck. That's yeah. That's a tough one. Also, that's like a long term. We need to, you know, what do they call it? Triage. You know, like yes. this person's bleeding out. Let's not prescribe a low cholesterol diet right. at this moment. You know, right. There are just too many fires, uh, metaphorical and, and literal fires Sometimes around, around yep. the earth that uh, around the political globe that is just are too hard to put out. They have too much momentum behind them right now that it does seem like uh, an impossible problem to solve. But I think the more if the more people are human focused and less money focused as a whole. If that's what we care about, then, you know, that's that's what we're going to get. Thousands across Europe call for peace in Ukraine. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Global Village Space, The Guardian, The Evening Standard, Countercurrents, and You're Active. Thousands of protesters called for peace in Ukraine in several European capitals over the weekend, following large-scale rallies across Europe against Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which marked its anniversary on February 24th. On Sunday, thousands reportedly rallied in the French capital of Paris and other locations across the country for the second consecutive weekend in protests organized by the right-wing party Le Patriots against Paris's arms shipments to Ukraine and the country's NATO and EU membership. Earlier in Germany, police claimed on Saturday that 13,000 anti-war protesters had gathered in the capital, Berlin, to demand an end to arms deliveries to Kyiv. The organizers claim there were up to 50,000 participants. The protests were also met with several small counter-demonstrations. Also on Saturday, a rally organized by the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament and the Stop the War Coalition was held in the British capital, London, in protest of continuous weapons shipment to Ukraine. Another group took to the streets to hold a counter-rally calling for an increase in military aid to Kyiv in its fight against Russia. Similar protests also took place in Italy, where several thousand people reportedly took to the streets in Genoa against military aid to Ukraine and the country's NATO and EU membership. Smaller protests for peace in Ukraine took place in Milan on Saturday. Meanwhile, in the Belgian capital Brussels over the weekend, 2,000 protesters reportedly called for Russia's withdrawal and an increase in military aid to Ukraine, while 1.6 thousand people condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine but urged de-escalation through diplomatic means. The Global Times brings us an establishment-critical narrative. The Europe-wide protests against arms deliveries to Ukraine reflect a growing rift between the European governments obedient to the U.S., and their increasingly concerned populations. This trend could also have a negative impact on the supposed unity of NATO countries in Washington's proxy war against Russia. European populations are becoming aware of the fact that Russia cannot be defeated militarily and that only a diplomatic solution can save them from an incalculable possible escalation. Here's the pro-establishment narrative from DW. It would be absurd to assume that European governments do not want peace in Ukraine, but it must not be peace dictated by the imperialist strongman in Moscow. The naive protesters do not understand that only Europe's ironclad commitment to Ukraine and continuous military support will create the basis for meaningful negotiations and prevent Putin from invading even more countries. It is understandable that many people are worried, but the free world must not allow the Kremlin dictator to create new realities by military means. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 28% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before the year 2024. Someone's got to figure out how everyone can walk away with this only feeling a little bit bad, and I don't know how that is. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it might be a little too ba- too late for that, but doesn't seem to be a an easy solution. And day 369 of the conflict in Ukraine as a Belarus group claims responsibility for an attack on Russian surveillance aircraft. Here are the facts as agreed upon by U.S. News & World Report, Ukrainska Pravda, Yahoo Finance, and the Associated Press. A Belarusian anti-government group known as BIPOL 
which was last year labeled a terror organization by the country's prosecutor general, has claimed responsibility for an attack on a Russian surveillance aircraft at an airfield near Minsk on Sunday. Bipol said the attack on the Beriev A-50 aircraft had been carried out with drones and by Belarusians who are now out of the country. However, there has been no official confirmation that the attack took place from either Belarus or Russia, and neither nation's defense ministry has so far responded to requests for comment. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials said they are investigating the death of a Ukrainian soldier near the border with Belarus over the weekend. Unconfirmed reports suggest that he was shot from the Belarusian side of the border, a claim denied by Minsk officials. Last week, Belarus accused Ukraine of building up a large number of troops near the border. However, Ukraine also made the same claim, alleging that approximately 10,000 Russian soldiers were in the vicinity. In other attacks, two civilians were reportedly killed and three others were injured in the western Ukraine region of Kamelnitsky after Russia deployed kamikaze drones over the country late on Sunday. Meanwhile, two civilians were injured in Russian attacks on Donetsk over the past day. Attacks were also recorded in the regions of Sumy, Cherniv, and Nipopetrovsk, as well as Kherson, Kharkiv, and Zaporizhia, with no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Elsewhere, in an interview with CBS that aired on Sunday, CIA Director William Burns said he judged Russian President Vladimir Putin as quite determined to continue waging the war in Ukraine, despite the damage it is doing to his country. He said, I think Putin is right now entirely too confident of his ability to wear down Ukraine. He also commented on U.S. assessments that China may be gearing up to provide Russia with military aid, describing it as a very risky and unwise bet. Okay, those were the facts. We'll start this round of narratives with a pro-establishment narrative from The Atlantic. Making sure Ukraine continues to be well-armed is the only way to fend off Putin and Russia in this unprovoked war of aggression. The U.S. and NATO must not simply offer up their latest and most high-tech weapons, however. Combat is about supply lines, and the West must ensure basic equipment and ammunition are kept flowing as needed. And the establishment critical narrative from anti-war. Multi-billion dollar weapons packages will make little difference in the outcome of the war. The U.S. has been meddling in Ukraine since the end of the Cold War, and what we're witnessing is a geopolitical Ponzi scheme to benefit those aligned with the military-industrial complex. War is a lucrative racket. And we've got a nerd narrative from the folks at Metaculus saying there's a 14% chance that China will get involved in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict by 2024. Tough part with this is, let's say, China decides to get involved with this conflict in a proxy manner by providing arms to Russia. It would be hard for the United States to get upset about that, considering they're doing the exact same thing with Ukraine, right? It's true. Yeah. It, but I, I'm sure that the United States would get mad anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a new U.S. government report says COVID likely leaked from a lab. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Alternet, New York Post, Breitbart, and The Guardian. An updated classified report by the U.S. Department of Energy, or DOE, released to the White House and some members of Congress, has reportedly concluded with, quote, low confidence that COVID was most likely caused by a laboratory leak. The DOE now joins the FBI in its assumption that the virus came from a coronavirus research lab in Wuhan, China. In its report in 2021, the FBI concluded with moderate confidence 
that it emerged this way no later than November 2019. In a CNN interview on Sunday, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan declined to confirm or deny the report, though he emphasized that President Biden had repeatedly directed the entire intelligence community to investigate the matter thoroughly. The DOE report, based on a document from Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines' office, is deemed important because the department, which oversees the U.S. nuclear weapons program, has its own network of national labs with a variety of scientific expertise. U.S. officials reportedly declined to say what information led to the DOE's shifting perspective, though they did say the department and the FBI came to the same conclusion for different reasons. Four other intelligence agencies still suggest the virus came from a means of natural transmission, while two are undecided. China has denied that the virus came from any of its labs. Claims that were first made after three researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology were sick enough to seek hospital care in 2019. Divisive narratives abound on this story. We have a right narrative spin from Red State. This is why we should not just appeal to authority and blindly trust the science. In the immediate aftermath of the outbreak, America's so-called experts were so obsessed with blaming everything on Trump that they were willing to ban any and all debate surrounding the origin of COVID. Finally, three years later, even the FBI and DOE have endorsed a theory they once labeled misinformation and racist. And here's the left narrative from Axios. Though the GOP will jump on this story as a gotcha moment to win political points, there is still no new evidence showing where exactly COVID came from, with some intelligence agencies arguing the lab leak theory and others arguing an animal spillover from a wet market. No conclusion has yet been drawn with any high level of confidence, and anyone claiming to know the answer is simply trying to rile up their echo chamber audience. In the interest of riling up my echo chamber audience, why can't it be both? Can't it have emerged from the lab, infected an animal, and then been spilled over from the wet market? Could be. Mayhem in the West Bank as two Israelis are killed and settlers rampage villages in response. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, France 24, Al Jazeera, The Jerusalem Post, Fox News, and CNN. In response to a Palestinian gunman killing two Israeli settlers, brothers Hillel and Yigel Yaniv, near the northern West Bank city of Nablus on Sunday, Israeli settlers rampaged a number of Palestinian villages, including Hawara, Burin, and Asira al-Kabaliyah. The Palestinian Health Ministry reported that a Palestinian man was shot dead by Israeli fire, while the Palestinian Red Crescent said that two others were shot and wounded, a third person was stabbed, and a fourth was beaten with an iron bar. Some 95 others were treated for tear gas inhalation. The settlers burned dozens of houses, cars, and businesses throughout the affected villages during the late-night violence. Photos and videos posted to social media showed large fires burning in the town of Huwara. Palestinian political parties and armed groups called for Palestinian residents in the West Bank to confront the settlers, and members of the Israeli government, including Prime Minister Netanyahu, condemned the rampage. Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, however, liked tweets supporting it before releasing an official statement calling for restraint. 
The violence comes immediately after a summit in Aqaba, Jordan, between Jordanian, Egyptian, U.S., Israeli, and Palestinian officials and representatives. A joint statement said that Israel was committed to temporarily halting settlement expansion in the West Bank, but Netanyahu appeared to contradict this on Sunday. The situation in the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel continues to deteriorate as violence worsens. Last week, an Israeli raid in Nablus led to the death of 11 people and injured over 100. Last month, a Palestinian gunman opened fire near a synagogue in an East Jerusalem settlement, killing seven people. Israel has launched regular raids throughout the West Bank following a spree of Palestinian attacks last year. We'll start these narrative spins with a pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. What happened in Nablus on Sunday night can only be described as a pogrom carried out by fanatic Jewish supremacists with the complete backing of the Israeli army and government. Though this event was so violent, many Israeli figures had to vocally condemn it. Settler violence is a common practice in the occupied West Bank and has been for decades. The settlers' violence is just another element of the Zionist project to displace the Palestinian people since the movement's inception. Emboldened by international silence after killing more Palestinians last year than in any other calendar year since the Second Intifada, the occupation is becoming even more violent. And the pro-Israel spin comes from Times of Israel. Of course, what the settlers did in response to the terrorist attack on Sunday was barbaric and monstrous. But one must keep in mind that such violence is a result of the Israeli government's failure in managing Palestinian terrorism. Netanyahu condemned what happened, and so did many in his cabinet. Figures that showed support for the riots should be sidelined. Israel does not support such acts of violence, as it goes against the moral foundation behind the state's creation. Most Israelis want peace, and the actions of these settlers do not represent the rest of Israeli society. And we have another nerd narrative that says there's a 45% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by 2070, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The GOP says candidates will be made to pledge loyalty to the 2024 presidential nominee. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Axios, U.S. News and World Report, CNN, Politico, and the Associated Press. According to the Republican National Committee, or RNC, Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel, the GOP intends to ask candidates vying for the party's nomination to pledge support for the eventual winner with those who refuse not being allowed to participate in party-sponsored debates. McDaniel revealed the party's intention on CNN's State of the Union show on Sunday, stating that the pledge was a requirement in 2016 and that the idea is a no-brainer for 2024. While former President Trump has not reacted publicly to the comments, in an interview earlier this month, he claimed that his potential support would depend on who the nominee was. A Trump spokesperson also said he will support the nominee simply because it will be Trump himself. McDaniel affirmed that Republicans can't keep attacking each other to the extent that they lose sight of their goal of beating Democrats. Highlighting the importance of supporting the will of the voters, she said she expects the pledge to be a criterion to run for the nomination, among other requirements yet to be finalized. So far, Trump, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, and conservative entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy are the most prominent GOP candidates to enter the race, 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former Vice President Mike Pence, among others, are also expected to join the race. The RNC is considering between 10 and 12 debates from as many as 18 media outlets due to begin this summer. Additional criteria are believed to include a new donor threshold, as well as a polling threshold of either 1% or 2%. Well, to the surprise of no one, we have some more politically divisive narratives here. Let's start with the Democratic narrative from CNN. Republicans have consistently and foolishly capitulated to Trump's desire since 2016. Because of this, the failure of his influence led to far fewer congressional seats than expected last November. Though the party is trying to turn this into an opportunity to exercise its own autonomy, and Trump may be more vulnerable than ever before, it's hard to believe that he will now suddenly abide by his fractured party's demands. And the Daily Mail brings us the Republican narrative. In order to finally break loose from the Democrats' woke stranglehold on the American people and bring the country back to a place of sanity, it is essential that the GOP remains united, no matter who wins the nomination, whether it's Trump, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, or any other potential candidate. The party is strongest when it gets behind a single leader. We've got Narrative C from the New York Post. This move by McDaniel once again highlights the chairwoman's total obliviousness. Such a decision is a lame attempt to pave over the party's stark distinctions, and in reality, GOP members will support whoever serves their interests best. The most important factor will be how quickly voters break either for Trump or a rival, and how quickly this will take, regardless of McDaniel's attempts to coerce candidates into what she wants. And here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 45% chance that Trump will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Well, George Washington, the father of our nation, said everything will be fine with America as long as we avoid foreign entanglements. So, oh. oh, okay. And Check. Don't, go, don't have a two-party system. Okay, so we're The House GOP is probing the response to East Palestine derailment. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Newsmax, CNN, Politico, The Washington Examiner, and NBC News. Multiple Republican-led U.S. House committees have started or are planning to start probes into the Biden administration's response to the February 3rd toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Last Friday, House Oversight and Accountability Chair James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, sent a letter to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg requesting the preservation of documents the committee would like to see. The Energy and Commerce Committee has also requested testimony from Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Reagan. The Transportation and Infrastructure Committee is considering a probe, and GOP representatives are thinking about holding a field hearing in East Palestine. Republicans are requesting Department of Transportation documents dating to January 20, 2021, related to any of the department's changes to train policy, its investigation into what caused the derailment, and the handling of hazardous materials at the site. Buttigieg visited East Palestine last week, but Republicans are interested in finding out why it took him 10 days to do so. Buttigieg has acknowledged the delay, saying that he felt strongly about this and could have expressed that sooner. Biden said last week he doesn't plan to visit East Palestine, but told reporters he's keeping very close tabs on the aftermath of the derailment. 
Former President Trump and Senator J.D. Vance, Republican of Ohio, among other Republicans, have both visited the town. Well, there's some divisive narratives here as well. We'll start the spins with a Republican narrative from The Daily Wire. If Buttigieg, who apathetically took nearly three weeks to visit East Palestine, isn't going to provide full transparency to Congress and the American people, then the House will compel him to testify and investigate the totality of the federal response to this disaster. While Democrats wrongfully blame former President Trump for this tragedy, Republicans are going to provide answers for the citizens who potentially face long-term health issues from the derailment. The Democratic narrative comes from MSNBC. Republicans are faking their concerns about what transpired in East Palestine in order to take shots at Democrats. But criticism of federal officials like Buttigieg is off target, considering his department by law doesn't have direct authority over the response. Stricter government regulation and stronger environmental policy, two things the GOP shies away from, would have gone a long way toward preventing this tragedy and could still work to stop future wrecks if Republicans would get on board. But don't count on it as long as they're under the railroad lobby's influence. The National Review brings us a cynical narrative. Both Republicans and Democrats have rushed to play the blame game, including pointing fingers at Trump, Biden, Buttigieg, the railroad industry, and lobbyists. But it's time to focus on the citizens of East Palestine who are being negatively impacted and need answers and help not to be part of some political game. DeSantis signs a bill to take over the Disney district. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, Axios, Forbes, CNN, and the New York Post. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Monday signed a bill requiring him to appoint a five-member board to oversee the government services for the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was previously controlled by entities of the Walt Disney World Company. The bill will turn governing power over the 2,000-acre district to be renamed the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District to the governor-appointed board, thereby creating a new state-controlled tax district. These powers include the ability to build a nuclear power plant and airport, though Disney never used them. The new board will have powers such as exclusive jurisdiction and control over infrastructure services, what gets constructed or demolished, building regulations, hiring people who work for the district, imposing taxes, and entering into deals with private contractors. During the signing ceremony at the Reedy Creek Fire Station in Lake Buena Vista, Florida, DeSantis said, Today, the corporate kingdom finally comes to an end adding there's a new sheriff in town and accountability will be the order of the day. Where it previously held near-autonomous authority, Disney will now have to comply with all state regulations within the district. The bill will also leave the district's debt obligations and other financial structures intact, with DeSantis saying it will impose no additional tax burdens on Floridians. This follows almost a year of conflict between DeSantis and Disney, beginning with the company's opposition of the parental rights and education law, which was dubbed the Don't Say Gay bill by critics. Disney says it will work within the new legislative framework. We've got a Republican narrative from Town Hall. Instead of caving to the woke mob, Disney CEO Bob Chapek should have taken DeSantis's advice and let the controversy over the parenting bill blow over. Instead, Disney reacted to left-wing online trolls by defying Florida law, leaving the state little choice but to adopt this bill. And the Democratic narrative from HuffPost. 
DeSantis is exploiting yet another culture war issue to increase his notoriety ahead of the eventual 2024 presidential campaign. And this time, the state's taxpayers will be footing the bill. While he mostly lied about what the bill will do, DeSantis sold out his citizens to gain control of a board and score political points nationally. They must have done some mathematics on this and crunched the numbers that it would be too expensive for Disney to move away or you wouldn't be able to buy that much land or somewhere else. But I'm sure Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, anyone would line up to make Disney World be in their state. Yeah, they're they're probably welcome it with open arms. If I was Mississippi and you could just suddenly drop the tourism capital of the world into, uh, you know, wherever or Arkansas or somewhere, I would I would have my eyes open on that. Yeah. Yeah. That that mouse is feeling a little bit uh, disrespected right now. If if I was two states that bordered, if I was Louisiana and Mississippi or something, I would say, let's put it on the line and we'll split the cost of moving Disney World to here and we'll right. put it on the line between our two states. We'll share it and then we'll split the you know, it's going to be billions of dollars to get it over here, but it'll pay off. We'll put it on a credit card. It's fine. It's the American way. And then we'll, we'll get them over here and it'll be worth it. That's what I would do. I would be I would have my feelers out if I was some other warm weather state in the area. Yeah. You know, to put it on a trailer with a wide load <laughs> truck. That's right. Like the, the Beverly the Beverly Hillbillies. Get grandma on top to get Minnie on top and just yep. drive it over here. Yeah. There we go. Our final story, the Dilbert comic strip is dropped after the creator's comments on race. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Al Jazeera, USA Today, ABC News, Independent, and NPR Online News. Many news publications will stop publishing the popular Dilbert comic strip after creator Scott Adams made controversial remarks regarding race. In a video posted Wednesday, Adams took issue with a recent poll in which 47% of black respondents said they either disagree with or weren't sure about the statement, it's okay to be white. Discussing the poll and race relations in America, Adams said, The best advice I can give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Also labeling black Americans a hate group and saying he doesn't want anything to do with it. The Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Washington Post, Andrews McMeal Universal, and San Antonio Express News were among the many media entities severing their relationships with Dilbert. Chris Quinn, the editor of Cleveland's The Plain Dealer, said dropping the comic strip was not a difficult decision, while the LA Times said it will discontinue Dilbert after its pre-printed editions come out March 12th. Adams defended his comments, saying portions of his remarks were posted out of context, but acknowledging his cancellations were predictable. Twitter CEO Elon Musk also defended Adams, claiming the media pendulum has swung to be biased against whites and Asians. Dilbert comic strips have been published for over three decades in newspapers providing commentary on office culture. 77 newspapers, including the San Francisco Chronicle, dropped Adams' comic strip last year for allegedly poking fun at the LGBT community. Thanks, Scott, for the facts on our final story. The left narrative comes from the San Francisco Chronicle. Newspapers across America are rightfully ending their relationship with Adams and his Dilbert comics after his racist outburst. Hate speech has no place permeating respected publications, and Elon Musk, the leader of the profoundly influential platform Twitter, should not have defended Adams or his racism. 
And the right narrative comes from the revolver. For the longest time, people have been deathly afraid to discuss the elephant in the room, the media's clear anti-white agenda. American media has incessantly parroted the narrative that white people are evil oppressors and all inherently racist. Adams and Musk highlighted this fact and are predictably being wiped from the political discussion table. Why does Dilbert's tie face upward? I never knew. I'm That's sure they explained question. it at some point. I never got it. I'd like, you know, if someone could explain that to me. And I, in a, I, don't, I just don't know. Why was it always pointed up? I, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I don't know. He's like, he's just too frumpled looking. Like, you know, he's too frazzled because he's right. It was the only, right. how can we, how can we express in a crude cartoon how f- bad this guy looks? <laughs> so Do you just think it's based up. off a real guy where he saw like, man, why won't his tie stay down? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what it was. I don't know. And, and it was never mentioned. Up. I mean, I've read plenty of Dilbert in my day. I've never been, I've never seen it mentioned like, oh, this is the origin of the tie. Now, maybe I'm just missing something. That's a but, great uh, question. Yeah. One that may never be answered. One of life's mysteries. Yeah, we probably will never find out now. No, Great. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. 